This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are the key priorities for the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT? How is it transforming the adoption and use of health IT? And how is the U.S. healthcare system continuing to progress toward value-based care to improve quality and patient outcomes? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Dr. Mickey Tripathi, National Coordinator for Health IT within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Mickey, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks so much. I really, uh, really look forward to being here. So I'd like to start off with some context. I was hoping you could give us an overview of the mission and continuing evolution of the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT. How has its mission and operations evolved since its inception? Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we were founded in 2004. Um, so, you know, in the scheme of federal agencies, we're a little bit on the younger side. And our mission is, I think of it sort of two dimensions. One is to coordinate federal health IT um, strategy across the federal agencies. So that's kind of a horizontal function to make sure that all of the federal agencies to the greatest extent possible are coordinating and aligning around a common set of objectives. And then um, is sort of the vertical is working with the market and industry to facilitate, encourage, motivate the establishment of an open architecture, health IT infrastructure to allow information sharing that ultimately um, serves the patient in the best way possible. The evolution of ONC is, you know, in terms of our mission, it actually hasn't changed, but the evolution, I would say, is much more related to, uh, you know, kind of the trajectory of the adoption and use of health information technology. So we, you know, are very much involved in the very hard work of getting electronic health record adoption, supporting CMS, and the Meaningful Use Program um, that provided incentives for uh, providers to purchase, uh, voluntarily purchase electronic health record systems and receive federal incentives um, through Medicare and Medicaid. And um, ONC was very involved in, you know, sort of serving as the health IT certification body to help to ensure that those technologies were going to meet the need that CMS had from a mission uh, objective. But now we, um, you know, sort of following the market and the maturation of our, um, you know, sort of industry adoption of health IT, we're more focused now on the uses of health information technology now that it's in place. And, you know, and, and thinking hard about what is that 21st century digital healthcare system that all of us worked really hard to lay the foundation for? What does that look like? And how do we think about that? I love the way you just nailed those two different uh, mission sets. But I was wondering, uh, Mickey, how is ONC organized? What, maybe give a sense of what your budget's like, number of folks that, that are helping you achieve the mission, and your geographical footprint. Sure, yeah. 
We are uh, about 180 people and, you know, fluctuates a little bit, but it's 180 roughly. And our budget is uh, $66 million, I think, uh, was what was enacted in uh, fiscal year 2023. And that's federal fiscal year. So we, you know, federal fiscal year goes October 1st to September and end of September. And the in this administration, the president's budget submission to the Congress has always been, you know, in every year since uh, since the Biden administration has been here, um, we've tried to increase the budget. So last year's budget request was for 103 million, um, and every year, unfortunately, the Congress has brought us back to around the 60 to 70 million. Um, so we're working really hard to, uh, you know, to to increase that. Uh, I will say, you know, just historically, if you look at it, you know, our budget hasn't changed that much over many years. So, but in terms of how we're organized, so we're roughly 180 people. Uh, roughly $66 million budget. And we're organized in, um, in three large divisions. Um, we have an office of technology um, headed by Avinash Shanbagh. We have a, um, an office of policy headed by Elise Anthony. And we have an office of operations, our COO, which is headed by Lisa Lewis. And, um, and I have a deputy national coordinator, Steve Posnack. Uh, and all of that leadership are, you know, fantastic partners. They're, or they're individuals who I've worked with individually and collectively over a number of years prior to joining ONC. Um, and that was really important because I joined in the, you know, at the height of the pandemic. So all of us were remote. Uh, so the fact that I actually had relationships with people in person in real life uh, prior to taking on the job, I think was, uh, you know, was was beneficial in our being able to hit the ground running. Uh, absolutely. That connection that, that, that you built over the years. I'd like to get a sense of your responsibilities, Mickey, as the National Coordinator for Health IT. What are your duties and areas under your purview? And more interestingly, how do your efforts support the overall mission of HHS? So, you know, um, just building on, you know, what I described before is the horizontal and the vertical, you know, really our duties are to, uh, you know, to help to formulate a consistent approach to health information technology. And that's, you know, standards, uh, data standards, uh, interoperability standards. Um, certain functionality standards for things like decision support, for example, and other kinds of technologies that are used um, in um, in clinical practice, and to be able to uh, you know sort of um, work on a consensus basis by convening you know important uh, federal agency and industry partners to be able to develop industry wide consensus on open industry standard approaches to accomplishing those things. There's you know lots of proprietary systems out there and lots of proprietary mechanisms that people can use to, you know, to accomplish things. But I think one of the uh, things that, uh, you know, that ONC plays a critical role in is providing some glue to an otherwise unbelievably fragmented healthcare delivery system, or even healthcare system, even even moving beyond just the healthcare delivery system. You know, the U.S., I think, in the industrialized world is very unique. I mean, we're unique in lots of ways, Um, but one of the areas that we're very unique in in our healthcare system is, is how fragmented it is both on the supply side and the demand side. And so I think ONC plays a critical role in trying to stitch together, um, you know, at least using, you know, certain technology and technology approaches, try to stitch together an otherwise very fragmented system to get more systemness out of that system. And so sort of the ways that we exercise that are a variety of levers. A lot of it is, you know, convening and coordination and facilitation and trying to make sure that, you know, that people are um, able to connect the dots and, you know, working in a collaborative manner. We also do rulemaking. So we have regulations that we, um, you know, that we put into place on a periodic basis um, to be able to establish things like, you know, certification requirements 
information blocking is a whole new set of rules and a whole new areas for us from a regulatory perspective. And all of those things are, you know, ways that we help to uh, move the market forward to maximize the public interest. In terms of the mission of HHS, we, um, and particularly since I came here, um, have had a really keen focus on helping the department be more than the sum of its parts. And, um, you know, working directly with, you know, the deputy secretary and the secretary who very strongly believe in the mission of the Department of Health and Human Services and want to make sure that, you know, that we leave the department better than we found it. And that's something that, you know, that we think that every administration should do is, you know, you have inherited something that has had decades of work behind it. And in some cases, you know, (laughs) many, many, many decades of work behind it. And our duty is to make it better then we found it and to invest in the organization itself, as well as, you know, trying to implement the specific policies of any of the administration who are, you know, here for only four or eight years. And so that can give you a short-term focus, but we also like to think about the long-term investment to make the department better um, on the whole. And, and so what that means for ONC is that, you know, that we work very explicitly and in a very proactive manner with our agency partners to say, you know, we are a service agency to you. All of you now are increasingly using health information technology, the electronic health records that we all work so hard to get into place, where in a previous era, you know, FDA, NIH, CDC, there wasn't a high adoption of electronic health records. So they just had their own programs and their own ways of getting data, and they didn't really have to think about, you know, what what are the ways to do this in a more standard-based manner integrated with the way the clinical documentation happens. But now that we have electronic health records in place, that's the opportunity for all of us to say, you know what, you can actually use that very effectively to better accomplish your missions, to make the best use of taxpayer dollars, and to be able to get more out of your mission objectives by aligning around, you know, a set of standards. So we work with our agency partners explicitly to say, you know, what are the missions that you have? How can health IT best support those missions? And how can ONC help to combine our respective authorities so that you can have the best possible success um, in in your mission objectives? That's wonderful. Uh, You know, doing that, um, you know, is, is a challenging Effort. I was wondering, Mickey, if you could share with us regarding the duties and responsibilities you just outlined for us. What are some of the, let's say, top three maybe challenges you face in your current role and how have you sought to address them? I think you alluded to a couple. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, the first is is budget. Our responsibilities are increasing dramatically, um, but our budget has remained constant, really since, if you look at since 2004, in many ways, our, our, in 2004, the ONC budget was $52 million. And I remember that very well because I was launching an organization called the Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative in Massachusetts. And we had a $50 million budget just for three um, communities in Massachusetts. And I was joking with, uh, with David Brailer at the time, who was the first national coordinator, that he had a $52 million budget for the entire country. <laughs> and so that was in 2004. And then, as I just described, our budget last year was $66 million. Like if you just in, in real terms made those that $52 million real dollars, that would get you up to over $90 million in real dollars. So in a, in a very real way, we've actually had a budget decrease over that time period. Now, we certainly had an up and down during the meaningful use era where we had, you know, the certification program to put in place. And, you know, so I don't want to pretend that that, that, that didn't happen. But in terms of our operational day-to-day responsibilities, that's grown dramatically. If you think about, you know, the, um, the increasing demands of the certification program, TEFCA, 
uh, you know, trust exchange framework and common agreement, the information blocking provisions, um, st- requirements for new standards that all came out of 21st Century Cures Act that were fantastic. I mean, we, you know, we were very pleased that the Congress had such confidence in us to invest in us um, those responsibilities. But it would have been great to have gotten budget <laughs> to, to do those things. And we got no, we got no budget. So that's that's the first challenge that we have is that we've got an increasing set of responsibilities. And as I said, the department and this administration have been fantastic in putting, you know, requests for additional dollars in the president's budget. We just haven't been able to see that all the way through the congressional process. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge, I would say, is. Um, you know, what I would say is just extreme risk aversion of the federal government. And, you know, and and, I, and what I mean by that is there's just a lot of risk aversion, um, particularly from a legal context in terms of, you know, the willingness to take policy risks and take risks around things that uh, in the process itself, you know, where you've got a lot of federal career employees who are fantastic. This isn't a criticism, but just by its nature, that creates risk aversion to taking, um, you know, certain set of policy risks, for example, that there may be concerns that, well, is that going to endure over time? Is that going to endure over this particular administration? Is that going to endure over this particular agency head? And then, of course, you have very, very sensitive risk assessments um, that, you know, that come from the legal side that make the federal bureaucracy, I think, my personal opinion, more risk averse than um, than we should be, because we need to be taking a certain balancing of risks in order to accomplish policy goals. Um, the American people have, um, you know, real needs and real wants from us. And if we take the most risk averse position every single time, we're not going to come close to meeting their expectations <laughs> for being able to get things done. So, um, so I think that's the big, the, you know, the second biggest, the second challenge I would argue is just that risk aversion and doing everything we can to have an appropriate balancing of it and, you know, and, and fighting that natural instinct. The third is we've got really long and complex regulatory cycles in the federal government. And, you know, we ONC, we're, you know, we're sort of at the frontier of technology um, and business change in a very rapidly changing ecosystem. And it's really hard to have these long and complex regulatory cycles that don't keep up with the pace of technology and business change. So we're always caught in this dilemma of putting things in regulation that actually aren't going to come out for another two years and trying to anticipate well, where is the market going to be then? <laughs> and you know, and and you're often wrong, right? You're often not exactly right because the the market is very dynamic and goes in different ways. And so that's an ongoing challenge, I think, is trying to figure out, you know, how do you work with industry, with sub-regulatory kind of things, helping to get you know leading indicators from industry, helping to set appropriate guardrails that can channel things in certain directions, but leave flexibility for the changes that you know are going to happen, but you just don't know exactly how they're going to unfold. So, uh, Mickey, would you tell us more about yourself and your career path? It's interesting. You have a PhD in political science. Um, I was wondering when and how did your interest in health IT and public policy happen? Yeah, um, I'm old, so if I explained all of this, it would uh, <laughs> occupy our whole time. But um, let me give you a short version. I often point out to my kids, uh, don't follow my career path because, man, it was you know circular and circuitous, and I had no idea what I was doing for a long part of it. And at every step, just said, well, this next step feels like the right thing, so you know, let me just jump in. To support in government and, uh, financial performance happens. and accountability, um, but financial I, you know, systems I think must I was be certain standards. And I, you know, I'm on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. 
immigrant doctors ERP from India, so there was a strong push as any child of Indian parents or physicians um, will tell you, a very strong push to uh, say, well, what kind of doctor are you going to be? That was your career choice. And so, you know, I was pre-med, but I quickly realized when I was in college that the Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 problem-solving nature of clinical practice as I saw it at the time. Obviously, you know, the, my, my horizons probably should have been broader because that isn't the only thing that physicians do. And, and more opportunities have now opened up for physicians that, that existed before. But anyway, it was pretty clear to me at that point that, that I'm not really built for that. I'm much more built thinking about more, you know, higher level abstraction kind of things. So that got me involved, you know, in political science, you know, from the beginning. But I think, you know, where my interest kind of got sparked in LFIT and, and public policy was I did, you know, find myself gravitating to areas where you had kind of the intersection of technology slash science and policy and politics, where all of those, you know, kind of politics and economics, where all of those came together was, you know, where I found, you know, myself, you know, sort of always gravitating. And it wasn't like explicit. It was just more stepping back after a few years and being like, oh, that's, I guess, what interests me. Because I always seem to end up in the middle of those kinds of things. Um, when I did my PhD work, it was, you know, straddling. Um, I was at MIT, so it was straddling the public, uh, the economics department, the Sloan Business School, and the political science department. And that's where my dissertation was, you know, in the middle of all of that, doing quantitative analysis. And then when I got to into consulting, um, all of the projects that I had the most, you know, sort of gratification from were, were in, again, in these areas. And one of the last projects I worked on as a consultant was um, working in Indianapolis, where we were looking at opportunities where business, academia, and government might come together to spark innovation. And one of the areas that we identified was health information technology because of the, you know, just the really groundbreaking and legendary work that has been done in Indianapolis with uh, Dr. Clem McDonald and Dr. Mark Overhage at the Reagan Street Institute. And so I just really got interested in that. And that seemed like, you know, that that uh, uh, might be an area that was nascent, but growing. And it also had those policy dimensions that I just found really fascinating and interesting. So that's how I ended up, you know, being there. I, I am the first national coordinator who is neither a computer scientist nor a physician. And I think I would say that for where ONC is now, that's probably to my advantage. <laughs> that my, that, you know, that political science and economics is, you know, is, is all about what the future of health IT is. Um, and uh, so in that way, maybe I'm, you know, best place to do that now. Absolutely. It's interesting, the, the maturation, as you said, 2004 to now, it seems like your credentials, your background is perfect for leading this. And that gets into my next question, Mickey, around leadership. Given your background, given your experiences, uh, I was wondering if you could share with us, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? And perhaps you could tell us more about the leadership principles that you follow? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we touched on some of them, but just to, you know, just sort of make them clear and, and distinct, you know, the first to me is um, is trust and transparency. That if you don't have, you know, absolute trust of your colleagues, as well as, you know, your, your colleagues like within ONC, for example, of, you know, the, the folks that were on the staff, my, you know, my leadership team, if we don't have trust and transparency in each other, we may disagree but, but we've got to be able to have trust and, you know, with our staff and with our agency partners um, and, and key stakeholders. Um, you know, too often, I think you get into situations, at least in my experience, where there is just, you know, this trust barrier 
that makes everything else impossible to be able to accomplish. But if you have, you know, the, a basis of trust and transparency where the other party feels like you are hearing them completely and that you may disagree, but you're transparent with them about the fact that you disagree and the fact that you might go in a different direction, that builds that trust, even though you may d- disagree and you may go in a different direction. So that to me is, you know, sort of the first thing. The second is, is just empathy. You've got to have deep empathy for the others you're working with, but also, you know, your customers. And I would, you know, put customers in quote because obviously we're the, you know, then customers and stakeholders may be more appropriate for a federal government agency. But if, you know, if we don't have deep empathy for those who we're serving, when I was in consulting, you know, with the Boston Consulting Group, it was, it was our customers. Like if you couldn't, and, you know, this is something that I told my teams when I was a manager there, like if you as an individual can't put yourself in the shoes of that customer and like really understand what is it they're feeling every single day, we are, you're not going to be successful as a consultant. You absolutely won't be because you can't see it. You know, you won't be able to see what it is they're facing. Um, and that, you know, is sort of, you know, going back to one of the things I was saying, you know, ONC's, uh, you know, very strong attitude now to approach our agency partners like the CDC and say, we need to understand from you and get really in your shoes about what problems are you trying to solve and how can we help you um, solve those problems? Because those are your problems. That was, that's what we want to solve. The third, I think, is, and it's related to it, is problem solving. Like coming to the table with a problem-solving attitude. Like we got a set of problems here. We're going to roll up our sleeves and help solve those problems. I'm not going to just dump on you an additional set of problems and leave you to solve those as if those are your own. Because, you know, then again, you're not going to get invited back. Um, you know, we want to we be in a situation where people are like, you know what? I always feel better after these folks leave because <laughs> they made me feel better about the opportunity to solve these things. And then finally, I, I think I would, I would just point to, you know, decision-making. That I think too often in my experience, you get caught into, yes, we've got a complex set of things. Yes, we can have, you know, more information. And this is a, you know, a lesson I learned from, you know, one of my mentors in the defense department where I was a junior analyst and, they were forcing me to say, is it this or this? And I was like, I just need more information from the Navy and the Marine Corps. I don't understand this. And finally, they were like, the secretary is going to make a decision tomorrow. He can either do that with your best information or shooting from the hip <laughs> because he, because you know this better than he does. So what are you going to do? And that was just a great lesson for me that, you know, that often you just have to make decisions and people appreciate that. And sometimes you have to circle back and say, okay, we need to tweak that. Or maybe it was a wrong decision. But in my experience, being a leader, people really uh, appreciate someone who is decisive based on the best um, available information that they have. What are the key strategic priorities for the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. 
TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Mickey Tripathi, National Coordinator for Health IT within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You know, Mickey, just for the audience, uh, health information technology, health IT, uh, simply refers to the use of information and communication technologies in the caring for patients. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your strategic vision for the office, and maybe even more importantly, tell us your priorities. We um, uh, group our priorities into, you know, kind of four areas. Just, you know, by way of just remind everyone of, you know, one of the things we were talking about before about how the trajectory of health information technology has, you know, has advanced so much over the last 15 years. You know, that a big part of the work starting from 2010 with the High Tech Act, the Meaningful Use Program, all of that, was just building that digital foundation. We had, you know, what, 10% of providers, I think, on electronic health records in 2010. Um, we were the, you know, the clear laggards of the industrialized world. All of our industrialized peers um, were way ahead of us in the adoption of, uh, of health information technology. And through the Meaningful Use Program, through the, you know, the High Tech Act and all the investments um, and incentives provided by the federal government, as well as, you know, the money and the blood, sweat and tears of providers and others uh, and health IT developers uh, putting into place that vision, we accomplished that building the foundation, you know, so a first part, so our goals, you know, the way we think about that with that, with that context are one, continuing to build on that foundation. So we've got that foundation, but you need to keep raising the floor on that. So increasing, you know, sort of the standardization of data and the availability of standardized data from those systems, uh, for example, filling in the gaps that that program didn't uh, fill. So hospitals, something like 97% of hospitals now use certified electronic health record systems. 85, 86% of physician offices use certified electronic health record systems. Again, over a relatively short time, you know, 13 years, where 10% prior to that used it. Now we've kind of flipped that equation so that almost all are using it. But there are still gaps. Behavioral health, um, substance use disorder clinics, long-term care, nursing homes, rehabilitation hospitals, psychiatric hospitals. We've still got a lot of uh, gaps, and that's a part of that building that foundation. So we're working hard with our agency partners and others to say, what levers can we use to continue to fill those gaps and to make sure that, that foundation is a rising floor so it's not static? Because that's got to keep pace with, you know, with industry. Second, so the first is build the um, digital foundation. The second is make interoperability easy. So you've got these systems now, everyone's got a system, but how do you make it easy for them to exchange information with each other? So we've got um, APIs and API-based approaches, um, application programming interface, um, for those who aren't familiar with that term, that allows systems to connect with each other in modern ways and, and really interact with each other in a dynamic way. You know, for those who aren't familiar with this, it's, you know, just look at your smartphone and all the apps you have on your phone are APIs in the background that are really easy to use. They're lightweight, they're configurable. They're awesome ways for, you know, for you to accomplish interoperability. We want healthcare to finally discover the internet and have, you know, um, uh, API-based um, uh, information exchange. And then the second thing is TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, which is network governance. Think of, you know, again, another analogy that people are familiar with. Think of the way cell phones 
work today. We think of our cell phone network across the country and indeed around the world as being a single network, when in fact, it's multiple networks that are connected with each other. We have, in, just in the U.S., we have AT&T and Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile and Cricket and all of these you know, different networks. They all connect with each other. When we purchase a phone, we don't worry for a second about, uh, is my phone going to connect with Michael's? It's like, well, no, it's absolutely going to connect, even though they're two different vendors, two different networks. That's what Tefka is designed to provide, is that connectivity in the back end so that you as a user you're using the CHR system, it's connected to whatever network it's connected to, you should have the assurance that that doesn't matter, that you can connect to any other EHR system, um, regardless of what network they're on. So that's the second one. First is building, the, continue building the digital foundation. Second is make interoperability easy. Third is encouraging people to use that interoperability. Because, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that just because you build it doesn't mean they will come. Um, we can put in place the technologies, we can make it easy for them to interoperate with each other, but there's still, you know, there's hesitation from business, uh, you know, business competitive reasons, um, but there's also just priority issues. I mean, lots of provider organizations, you know, it's not just the technology, they would have to change their workflows. Um, you know, there's a lot of workflows that are built into just faxing stuff to other provider organizations or just handing the patient a stack of paper record and saying, here, you know, you take this to the specialist. You know, as much as we want to get rid of that, we, you know, need to appreciate that, yes, you can make the technical mechanisms for that. But if you're going to do that in a safe way, in an efficient way, there's some workflow changes that are required as well. But that takes encouragement, right? That takes encouragement. So that's things like the information blocking rule, for example, um, that, uh, you know, that basically say to organizations, you know what, you have an obligation to share information with other parties and with patients using electronic mechanisms, not just handing them stacks of paper. And then the final thing is, so, you know, it's building a digital foundation, make it easier to uh, interoperate, interoperate. Um, and then finally is the guardrails on the other end of it, which is now that we're sharing information, how do we make sure that we've got appropriate guardrails on that end? So um, focus areas like health equity, for example, to make sure that the data that's being exchanged is sensitive to the different communities that we have and to you know make sure that we um, have an ability to assess whether we're doing right by all the communities that are in this country and the ability to to put in place mechanisms to um, rectify areas where we may have health inequity. And then, of course, it wouldn't be, uh, uh, you know, a healthcare or any kind of conversation if I didn't mention AI. AI is another area that we that um, have a lot of focus in, which is to say, how do we make sure that algorithms are appropriately using the interoperability, the data that's made available through electronic health information um, on the best, to the best benefit of the patients and not to their detriment? I mean, that's excellent. I mean, you you really laid out some of the progress that has been made, and I'd like to jump forward a little bit if I could. You know, Mickey, there are some challenges um, in the healthcare environment that must be considered when developing and implementing strategies to advance health IT. I was wondering if you could share with the audience what are some of those challenges that you see in in, in advancing your mission. Um, yeah, the, I mean the. You know, the first challenge, again, something that we talked a little bit about before, but, you know, certainly to elevate it here um, is is just that, you know, the fragmentation of the healthcare delivery system, both on the supply side, which is the, you know, providers and the health IT developers 
who provide care and the technologies uh, that they use to provide care is unbelievably fragmented. I mean, you have large provider organizations like HCA and Mayo Clinic and, you know, all of that. But if you look at, you know, underneath the, and there's, there's certainly growing consolidation. So I'm not saying there isn't, but if you look under the covers of the, the provider side of the market, it is still very, very, very fragmented. And even large organizations that have been put together through acquisition find that they've got tremendous fragmentation in the provider, you know, sort of landscape that they, that are technically under the same corporate umbrella, but they're all on different EHR systems. They all have different cultures. They all document differently. Um, so there's still that fragmentation and, you know, that issue of fragmentation. And then, you know, on the demand side, which is patients and health insurers acting on our behalf to purchase healthcare, again, Highly, highly fragmented. You just think about, you know, how many different health insurers there are and the fact that it's all, um, you know, regulated at the state level, for example, um, for commercial health insurance. That's a big, big challenge. And it's really hard to get coordination around anything, you know, across a big, complex country like ours. So that's the first challenge is always trying to figure out, all right, what creative ways and creative mechanisms do we have to be able to um, get coordination in a system that belies coordination. <laughs> and as I said, that's a part of what we see ONC doing is, is like being the glue that tries to bring all that together to try to align people's incentives to do that. But that's an ongoing you know, challenge and is one of the biggest issues that we face. The second set of challenges, I would say, and this is a little bit more forward-looking um, now, I think is going to be an upcoming challenge. I mean, it's always been a challenge, but I think it's going to be more pronounced is just privacy issues related to data sharing. You know, we have lived with HIPAA for, you know, since uh, for what, 21, 22 years now, since putting in place of the HIPAA security rule and the HIPAA uh, privacy rule in the early 2000s. And, you know, and that has um, stood us very, very well. I mean, I think that that actually has, you know, been a, a great law and a great set of regulations that has served us very well. But now we live in a world where you've got an increasing amount of information that is going outside of the boundaries of HIPAA um, in ways, some of it natively, originating on the outside, like just, you know, um, the ability um, to be able to look at your search history or Google Maps and your location history and be able to infer things about your healthcare that, uh, that, that aren't a part of your healthcare record, as well as, you know, the, uh, the challenge of more and more information being made available to patients, which is a great thing. And ONC has certainly been pushing hard on that. But the challenge that we face that the minute that that information is in the hands and control of the patient is the minute that it has left the protective walls of HIPAA. And patients don't understand that because it's really complicated and it's not intuitive at all. Um, I think for most people, um, they, you know, most people think that, well, wait, wait a minute, HIPAA protects my medical record information, right? So I think that's a challenge that we, you know, that, that we have that we all need to, you know, sort of grasp with as a society of, you know, how are we going to address that challenge in a way that allows people to um, have access to their information and be able to do the things they want to do with their information, but um, have um, first the awareness of the risks that they're taking and taking control of their information um, with our current regulatory structure and the protections that they need to be able to put in place to make sure that they um, have, you know, the safety that they need um, over that information. You know, Mickey, I would, I'd like to talk about interoperability. What are some of the progress in interoperability? Where, how are you increasing it? What are you focusing on? And maybe what are some of the barriers that you're still dealing with? 
Yeah, I think there's been a tremendous amount of progress in interoperability, frankly, that I think that the industry doesn't, doesn't get credit for. So if you look at the exchanges that happen today, so there's a network called CareQuality, which is kind of an umbrella network over, you know, over a number of networks. The amount of interoperability that happens over those networks, it's something like 50 million transactions per day that are conducted over care quality. And that's provider to provider um, for treatment purposes. And, you know, just to give a benchmark, the SWIFT global banking network that all of us are familiar with from the Ukraine crisis, um, that global banking network does something like 41 million per day. So we've got a lot of interoperability happening. It's just that it's happening in a very narrow use case, which is provider to provider for treatment purposes, and that it's kind of a back end Thing. It happens on the back end in a way that clinicians themselves may not even fully appreciate. They don't ask the question, how did that get here? They just, you know, it just appears and they're like, oh, okay, great. And they don't appreciate that actually that's interoperability. So, you know, I think a tremendous amount has happened, but there are still many gaps. You know, we still have 30% of hospitals not connected to um, nationwide networks. Public health agencies aren't connected to nationwide networks and we don't have the kind of interoperability that we need to serve the country. Payers aren't able to connect to those networks and they don't have that integration that we need with the healthcare delivery system because we're all one system and we need to be able to act like one system as it relates to public health and, and payers. So that's, that's, I think, is a big gap um, and, you know, where we want to move next with things like Tefka and the ability, you know, to have easier interoperability that's much more in line with the ways that we interoperate in other domains of our life. And that's what fire APIs are about. The ability to say, I can have that very specific, dynamic, very beautiful set of, you know, API, RESTful API approach that has served us so well in many other walks of life to be able to have that be a key part of interoperability. And we're working really hard with our agency partners to get that in place. I want to talk about Tefka, but before I get to that, uh, Mickey, I was hoping you could tell us more about the progress around the implementation and use of the information blocking provisions in the Cures Act. How has this information blocking necessitated the change of culture and how information is shared across the continuum of care in the health ecosystem? Yeah, it's um, it's something that has uh, taken a while to ripen, I would just say, um, because it's, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act was passed in 2016, remember, um, you know, 2016, and here we are in 2023. We came into office in 2021 and none, literally none, of the components of the 21st Century Cures Act um, related to that, that were specifically, you know, assigned to ONC um, had been implemented. So there's a lot of work to do in a relatively short time to say, wait a minute, we need to rectify this and get this the very important act that had very strong bipartisan support um, on, you know, both sides, both chambers of Congress, as well as both parties um, in 2016 to get that implemented. That was very strong sentiment that this was important for the, for the American people. So information blocking was, you know, was a big part of it. And just to level set, the information blocking provisions um, basically say that you cannot interfere with the exchange of what's called electronic health information between authorized parties, meaning parties that are already authorized to have access to that information through applicable law. So it didn't open up any new avenues for information sharing. What it said is that if you're already authorized to share information with that other party, like a primary care physician and a specialist or a physician and a health plan or a physician and a patient, that if you're all already authorized to do that, you're obligated to do that. That isn't, that isn't like a choice. You shouldn't feel that that's a choice. You should feel that you have an obligation to do that. That's what the information blocking rule said. And that you can't interfere with what was seen as that's, that should be a natural flow of information. 
Um, that shouldn't be, you know, something that's gated. That should be something that flows naturally and is only gated under specific conditions. So anyway, so ONC came in. We on April fifth, twenty twenty one, we put the um, that final rule into place, which set the policies for uh, the information blocking you know framework, and specifically said, you know, defined information blocking and it defined exceptions as they're called, where an actor could say, well, here's why I'm not sharing the information. But it's very, fairly explicit and says there's only eight reasons that you can have for not sharing that information. And by the way, if you don't share the information, you have an obligation to kind of document, um, you know, why you didn't, you know, so that uh, you can actually stand up to that um, if you're ever challenged on why you didn't share that information. So in terms of the progress, you know, we um, the first the first part of it was April 5th, 2021, which was to share a minimum data set, the US CDI was the minimum requirement, the US core data for interoperability. And then on October 6th, um, 2022, which was 18 months later, the requirement went into effect for what we call all electronic health information, um, which the statute defined as all electronically accessible information, which is a lot of information. And so in terms of, you know, where we are there, um, I know there's a long story, but let me just uh, de- describe, there's a little bit of complexity here because the statute left open certain things that were now working hard to close. One was they um, directed ONC to essentially establish the policy for information blocking, but they authorized um, our sister agency, the Office of Inspector General, to do enforcement. So that was one. Now you have two agencies that are coordinating. Each agency has to do its own rules. So ONC got our rule out on April 5th, 2021. The OIG rule on enforcement wasn't finalized until just July 7th, I think, um, of this year was when they put their final rule out. So that was, you know, that's, that was a, an important piece of the puzzle, right? Because, uh, you know, April 5th, 2021, we basically said to industry, you're required to be in compliance with this now. But of course, industry is looking at it and thinking, well, there's no enforcement defined. So how much should I really pay attention to this? Now, I don't want to say that people were doing that. I mean, everyone, I think, was moving forward saying, okay, yes, I need to be in compliance. And we're certainly hearing from a lot of compliance officers about, hey, how do I do this? You know, so it's certainly the industry was moving forward. But I think as all of us would appreciate until enforcement is really in place, that's when you really pay attention. It's like, oh, okay. Now, now people are watching and I actually could be fine. So that's, that's the, you know, that's the first thing. Um, the second is that the law didn't specify penalties for providers. So, you know, who's subject to the law? There are three actors, health IT developers, which is like the Epic Cerner's, Athena Health of the world, health information networks. And then the third is providers. Now, just as an aside, payers were not named as actors. That was in the statute. So just as a point of reference for everyone, for whatever reason, the Congress didn't include payers in that. So payers are not obligated to share information under information blocking unless they are like a health information network or they're a provider. As we know, a lot of payers are also providers. So in their context as a provider, and they certainly are, but in their context as payer, they are not. But for those three actors, the law said um, that, you know, we're going to give um, the authority to the Office of Inspector General to assess civil monetary penalties of up to a million dollars per incident, which is a real fine. I mean, if you compare that to like HIPAA fines, for example, that's, you know, that's real, that's a, a really strong penalty. But they said that only applies to technology developers and health information networks. For providers, what the law said is there will be appropriate disincentives that we are not going to define we're going to leave it to the Secretary of Health and Human Services to define. And the Secretary of Health and Human Services has to do it within existing authorities. So we're not going to give the Secretary any new authorities to do that. So that was really complicated. So we came into office. That wasn't defined. 
no progress made on that. So we've been working really hard to work with the secretary's office to say, all right, how are we going to do that? We have announced, and it's in the federal regulatory schedule, that um, we are going to be publishing a draft rule in the fall of this year. Um, which will be our draft rule on the appropriate or the first set of appropriate disincentives that uh, we are proposing uh, be put in place. So all of that is to say those pieces need to be put in place, but we are certainly hearing a lot from industry about, you know, about it. Um, we're certainly hearing about certain provisions of it, like the immediacy of the, you know, the requirement to make lab results immediately available. That's gotten a lot of press attention. And obviously people are doing that because of the information blocking rule. So you know that those parts of it, people are complying with because they're because some of them are complaining about it and many, many others like patients are celebrating it. And we also have complaint process. We have roughly 730 complaints since April 5th. That's that's all available on our portal for anyone who wants to go and see the, you know, the portal. We get roughly one a day, one complaint a day for on information blocking. Uh, you know, Mickey, you mentioned uh, the trusted exchange framework and common agreement, TEFCA, a couple of times. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that. What's going on in this area? What does it do? And how uh, how's the uh, implementation going? Yeah, the, um, the trusted exchange framework and common agreement is, um, you know, I myself... As I was describing, you know, earlier, my introduction to health IT was actually working um, to help launch an HIE, a health information exchange in Indianapolis that became the Indiana Health Information Exchange. And so, you know, they've had a lot of experience from the ground up working with, you know, health information exchanges in state and regional areas. And now we have nationwide health information exchange networks as well, like the Commonwealth Health Alliance and the eHealth Exchange and, um, and a number of others. But the congressional direction, looking out at the landscape and saying, okay, we've got a lot of networks now at the state and local level, at the nationwide level, but we need something to tie them together. So that, as I was saying before, we need, we have the experience of having a single network, even though it's totally fine to have a whole bunch of networks. That's, you know, that's, that's good um, in many ways because it helps um, individualize those uh, kinds of um, services for, you know, for those participants. But we ought to at least have a basic expectation about how they connect with each other for a basic set of services. And that was the direction that we got from the Congress was to support or develop a governance and, a, and an infrastructure for um, that kind of connectivity between networks. So that's what TEFCA is. We're working with industry um, on, a, on, you know, kind of a public-private model to say, how do we establish a consensus approach to a common agreement, which would say, I can just sign one common contract and that'll allow me to access information from all these other parties and share information with those, those other parties without having to have individual contracts with every single one of them. Because that's, you know, again, in our fragmented system, that's really hard at that point if you're going to have, you know, sort of kind of the universal um, basic sharing information we want to be able to have. And how do I have a common technical approach so that we can just basically agree on a set of open industry standards and be able to share that information? So that was the direction that we got. And that's what we've put in place. So we've, um, we were given no new budget or no new authority. But what we did is we worked with industry. There was a bit of a reset that we had to do when we came in um, with this administration to make it something that industry would find um, attractive and that would be a win-win for the public and the private side. Um, but now we have, I'm really happy to report, we've got seven organizations, networks that have stepped forward and volunteered to be the networks that will be the, you know, the first set of networks to establish TEFCA-based exchange, where the idea is each of them agrees to sign that common agreement for data sharing, and each of them agrees to implement a technical infrastructure according to open industry standards that all of them agree to, and to allow them to interact with each other. 
on behalf of their participants. So on February 13th of this year, we announced those QHINs, we call them, Qualified Health Information Networks. You can kind of think of them as the AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile and Sprints of, of the cell phone world. Um, that's kind of what they are. And we announced six of them, and then one, one uh, was approved later, who were given the green light to implement. So we have you know, kind of a two-stage process. One is you have to qualify as an organization because I think as hopefully everyone um, you know, will appreciate, uh, you're certainly coming out of the pandemic, this is critical national infrastructure at this point. This isn't like a nice-to-have interoperability infrastructure. When we talk about the public health requirements that we have, when we talk about the need for privacy and security of our data, I think you know, hopefully we'll all agree at this point that, all right, this is now something that we need to recognize as critical national infrastructure. So we take very seriously that organizations who are going to do this have to meet a series of tests of their governance model, their sustainability, their ability to do these transactions, their ability to manage security of high volume networks, all of those things they had to demonstrate. So the first seven QHINs who have been approved means that they have met that first test, that we have vetted them or our nonprofit partner has vetted them and said, yes, they have the experience and the expertise um, and the organization's strength to do this. Now, the second part is we gave them the green light on February 13th to implement. And so we're on track now to go live with a set of those QHINs um, for Tefka Exchange before the end of 2023. And we're really excited about that. And the first stage is using older style kind of standards, IHE standards for those who are familiar with that. But next year, we plan to go live with Fire-based exchange as well, using these new Fire API capabilities that are now required to be made available in all EHR systems. So a lot of exciting things that I think are going to be happening over the next year or two with Tefka. How is U.S. healthcare system progressing towards value-based care to improve quality and patient outcomes? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Mickey Tripathi, National Coordinator for Health IT within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I, I want to talk and switch gears to value-based care. How is the U.S. Uh, system continuing to progress in, in this area to realize the, the, the importance of value-based care in improving quality and patient outcomes? Yeah, you know, um, I, it's a great question. And, and uh, you know, I think a really insightful question in the sense that it gets right to the heart of the challenge we have with interoperability, which is to say that in a fee-for-service world, interoperability is just overhead. And that's why you face resistance from a business level, right? Because there's no real incentive for an organization if they're just being paid in a fee-for-service world, just being paid procedure by procedure without regard to making the most efficient um, decision in a more holistic perspective. If they're not given that business incentive, then 
people won't do it. And that's, you know, that's not a criticism. That's, you know, people respond to business incentives. Um, and so I think that's been, uh, at least from, you know, from my experience on the ground, the minute that organizations move to a value-based perspective of the world, and whether that's through an ACO contract or through, you know, a patient-centered medical home, uh, you know, kind of approach, whatever it is that provides that incentive and that motivation to say, I'm going to step up one level and think about the overall problem here <laughs> and not just about, you know, billing for the next procedure, but think about how can I actually do this in the most cost-effective way that gives me an incentive to think about making investments in getting more information on this patient that actually will allow me to make better decisions that speak to the, you know, the best interest of the patient here from a longer-term perspective is the minute that I reframe my decision-making to that is the minute that I then start saying, where's my interoperability? I need to have interoperability. I need to know where that patient went. I need to know the minute that patient shows up in the emergency department somewhere, I need to be notified of that so that I can follow them up, follow up with care immediately after they're discharged to make sure that they've got continuity of care and don't end up back in the hospital. Those are the kinds of things um, that value-based care motivates in my experience. And I you know, had plenty of experience working on the ground with provider organizations who literally, and you know, I'm not going to point to the organizations, but who literally we had been working with for a number of years trying to get them to care about interoperability. You know, and it was all, you know, sort of pushing, you know, really, really pushing uphill. And then the minute they signed like a CMS, MSSP, ACO contract, they're calling us saying, I need that interoperability you were talking about. <laughs> I need that data warehouse. You know, where is it? Can you deliver it tomorrow? And again, it just speaks to, again, it's not a criticism. They're not short-sighted. They're not, you know, they're not evil people. It's just that the business incentive moved in a different direction and then gave them the motivation to say, all right, this is actually not overhead anymore. It's an investment in value creation. And that's why I'm not going to, you know, care about it. So I think I think it's just fundamental. I think one of the challenges we have, and you know, and certainly with you know, CMS is doing a ton of great work in this area, and CMMI and a number of other programs as well as commercial payers, is that you know the jury's still out on the value-based care models that have been out there. Some of them have been great, and some of them have been less great. And so until we're able to, you know, really move aggressively forward to move more and more of the system um, toward value-based care, you know, we're always going to be struggling with all these other things that we have to, you know, sort of um, push on, like information blocking and other things to motivate people to share information. Um, because in some cases, a big part of their business may just militate against doing that because they're still living in a fee-for-service world. You know, before we close, Mickey, really quickly, I was wondering, you know, unlocking the power of data. You have so much data. Um, you, you, you're using that data. You're leveraging it to advance standards. You're, you mentioned earlier the APIs and using that and obviously machine learning and all this. All these things are coming together to kind of shape the direction of the future for health IT. I was wondering if you could touch on data, APIs, and just what do you think the future is going to look like in this area? When I first entered health IT and was working, you know, in the trenches for a long time, we always focused on standardized structured data. We need to standardize the data. It needs to be structured, discrete data elements. And that's what we need to do because we're not going to be able to get the kind of ability to aggregate information and be able to do analytics and population health and longitudinal medical records and all of that unless we have that standardized data elements. And I think one of the things that, you know, that we've seen as an industry is, yes, that is valuable, but it's really hard work. 
And it takes a long time, right? Standards take a long time by definition because you're trying to get consensus among all these disparate parties and increasingly in a global world. So that will certainly be a rising tide and the USCDI, the US Core Data for Interoperability is a standard that ONC promulgates that we require that EHR vendors support. And that in many ways is the minimum data set of the healthcare delivery system. But as big as the USCDI is, I think people are starting to appreciate that, wait a minute, there's a whole bunch of information on top of that that is really, really valuable, you know, deep narratives and notes and images and all sorts of other stuff that is not standardized. And in some ways, the ceiling is rising faster than the floor. You know, there's more and more types of data, right? Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about AI. And well, wait a minute, what are the generative AI outputs that all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, are going to be coming into play? And how do we think about those? And, you know, more uh, genetics information and protein folding. And I was like, you know, there's no end to how much more information is being added on the top. And I think that we all just need to recognize we're never going to standardize everything. We also have with you know, and certainly everything that we've seen since November in the public release of ChatGPT is that we've now got the ability through AI, through commodity computing power, through, you know, the availability of commodity cloud services for storage, um, the ability to do a whole lot more with unstructured data than, than, you know, than we were able to do even three years ago, four years ago. So I think that's where, you know, in terms of where is this all headed, I think the continued use of that standardized data, but the opening up of a whole bunch of other data that we previously thought wasn't really usable, that now is going to be made usable um, in ways that, uh, you know, certainly will be positive. We also need to be very, very cognizant of the fact that there are lots of ways that that data is going to be weaponized um, against us as well. <laughs> and we need to make sure that we have guardrails um, that protect us from that. Excellent point. Before you go, Mickey, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? My experiences both is, you know, in my previous life in the 1980s working in the Defense Department and um, and now in this current role are that, you know, public service is just a fantastic, fantastic experience. You get the, you know, the same kind of, uh, you know, adrenaline that some people may recognize when they go to do jury duty. Like, you, you know, you're just like, you resist it at all costs. You say, how can I get out of this? And then at least my experience and almost everyone I have talked to, literally almost everyone I have talked to across the political spectrum almost always says, you know, I got there and they give you that speech and you're with all these other people and you really feel like I'm a part of a country here. <laughs> I'm a part of something and it feels really good. And I think that, you know, when you, Public service, I think, gives you that, um, that you really do have this strong sense of, I'm really working for the people. And, um, and that's really important. I think the other thing is you get a real appreciation um, for the deep responsibilities that we have in the government. And, and you end up getting more responsibility in a faster manner than you would get, I, in, my, in my experience, on the private side. And that's important because you don't get the financial compensation <laughs> that you do on the public service side. So, you know, everyone needs to figure out where on my career trajectory will this make sense um, because, you know, I need to feed a family and all of that. Um, so that's those are important considerations. But I would just say it is, you know, at, I have very few people who I know who um, have said that their public service experience hasn't been unbelievably enriching. And obviously it makes a huge contribution to our country to have people doing it and willing to do it. Mickey, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you so much, Michael. I've really enjoyed it. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Mickey Tripathi, National Coordinator for Health IT within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Be sure to join us next time. 
for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government technology and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.